All right, guys, and we're live. It's back at it again, Smashcast. My name is Carlo. I have a very special guest with me. I'm kind of switching up the pace here. Um, this is going to be more of an educational uh, podcast. Um, I got my buddy Robert Campbell. Um, he's a buddy of mine, and uh, we go. We always go back and forth with um, with a lot of topics. Um, and um, I would say that Rob is a free thinker, um, and and he's well invested into uh, into thinking um, differently and uh, doing his doing his due diligence and being a, a member of this community. All right, Robert, uh, please introduce yourself to the people. How you guys doing? Hey, my name is Robert Campbell, um, political science major right now over at uh, CSN, um, Charleston campus mostly. But uh, yeah, um, basically came into this um, just kind of educating myself. Uh, and the more I learned, the more I thought that I had to, that I had a, like an obligation to kind of uh, see what I could do to uh, change things that I saw that were uh, wrong, basically. Um, one of those things is, uh, for me, um, I've been very privileged in my life. Uh, grew up in California, parents, uh, worked well. Uh, my, my dad was a uh, military Marines out in Tustin, uh, Tustin military base out there. Um, comfortable middle-class life, uh, moved out to Vegas and, uh, we really kind of lived that middle-class lifestyle like really well that that california money translated well over to vegas you know we were able to live comfortably in a five bedroom house um but the more i read i understood that my experience was not necessarily the experience of a lot of others and the more i read i understood that certain things that we see nowadays that we kind of take for granted we don't understand how those came to be and we don't really understand the, the ramifications of a lot of the things like, I mean, think about the term inner city. The term inner city, when you hear it, you automatically, you can picture it in your mind. Inner city, ghetto. You, you, you picture the people that live there, usually of like a certain background. You know, it's usually Hispanics, you know, or blacks, you know, poor whites. There's a reason for that. And I think the more I read, I understood, I started to see that more clearly. And all of it just kind of, it's like an epiphany. You're just like, wow, wow. This is this is deeper and more ingrained into our society than I think a lot of people realize um, or a lot of people care to realize. You know, it's, it's one of those things is that we, and this is not to fault anybody, is you're concerned with your life. I'm concerned with my life. It's hard for us to kind of like look outside of that and be concerned with others. And to try to understand why people are where they're at. And that's not to say that people don't have their own agency. Absolutely. Like, there's definitely something for you taking control of your life and doing as much as you can. But everything is not necessarily in your control. Most of it, I would say, or a lot of it is. But there are other extenuating circumstances. And the more that we kind of educate ourselves and understand that some of these things are kind of set into motion by forces that are bigger than us and we have to fight against those one you can learn to navigate the system a little bit better and learn like where your limitations are as a person and things that you may need to focus on a little bit more um but yeah it's one of those things where i think people just education on certain subjects will illuminate people's minds a little bit to where it's like all right 
okay, now I see why this is this way. And now my thought on this and these type of people is changed a little bit. And if you can just do that incrementally for, you know, a couple thousand people here, a couple thousand people there, a million people there, like you really start to change the culture. And I think that's the, I think that's the main thing is that I'm trying to do is like, I hate politics. Politics to me is a necessary evil, unfortunately. Um, I'm concerned with policy. And policy is really the, it's the implementation. It's the the law making, not the stuff that you see on TV. I think that is kind of a, that's what we focus on now because that's what gets the headlines. That's what, you know, that's what draws viewers in. That's what gets the clicks, you know, online. But it's not the, that's not the important part. It is necessary because it, it is important on how people talk about certain subjects because they really craft how others view subjects. So if you use certain terminology, um, the term dog whistle uh, is, is one that I like to to bring people's minds to. It's like when you hear, you know, if you watch CNN or, you know, Fox News, it's a dog whistle. What does a dog whistle mean? Dog whistle is certain words, phrases. So when you say inner city, you're talking about black communities. That's what it is. Like, but... It's a way to say it without really saying it. It's like you're targeting a certain audience with that, with that, with that terminology, and their their ears perk up. That's where the dog whistle comes from. You know, you blow that dog whistle. Most hum- humans can't you know, hear that; they can't perceive that. But that dog's ears perk up. That dog hears that loud and clear. That's what the dog whistle is. And a lot of times in politics, when you hear certain politicians say these words, and people come back and they're like, "Man." Other people will be like, that's racist. And then other people will be like, that's not racist. How could you say that? It's like, I heard what was intended to be heard. Um, so like a lot of these things, like I said, we were talking about the inner cities. Um, the reason why inner cities look the way that they do is uh, due to a, a phenomenon called redlining. And it's really, it kind of goes on today. It really does. Like it's never fully been dealt with. We kind of pass some laws to kind of, guard against it but i mean you know when you talk about policy people are very crafty with their words you know lawmakers lawyers like they go to school for this stuff like that's that's what they do is they they can write legislation that sounds perfectly fine on on its merits you're like okay i read that good but if you dig a little bit deeper and if you understand what they're trying to do it's it's very it's very pervasive in how they kind of craft policies to keep certain people and certain, you know, demographics down. And, you know, a lot of it is for, for profit. You know, it's like, you know, I don't think necessarily all these people are inherently, you know, bad or anything like that. I, that's not what it is. But certain structures are in place and they're hard to move to fight against. And that's what it is. It's like money, money really does talk. And if you start to take money away from, from one group, it it really has to go somewhere else, you know. And c- certain things are zero sum, you know. It's like certain people are going to move ahead. You can you can say that it's going to take away from these other communities, <clears throat> but you know, as if our society is more equal, then we as a people are are better off. And I think that's what you what we have to kind of realize is that like maybe we will do a little bit less, we'll be a little bit less well off, but as society as a whole is better then we're all safer. If there's less poverty, 
there's less crime. You know, I mean, that's just, that's common sense. I like, that's, I mean, you can look up plenty of data and, but the less poverty, the less crime. Cause you don't, these people don't have to fight for this stuff, but we're, we're not, we're not doing that. We're right now. Our society is moving in the opposite direction. We're, we're really just, we're, we're holding on to what we have and I don't think there's, like I said, there's anything inherently wrong with that, but we have to realize that sometimes we have to give back a little bit, you know, that's not to say upend your whole life, but it's to say that kind of look outside yourself a little bit and, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and look for these communities that are, that are struggling. That's tough. I mean, like people, people are not used to, to, to hearing that, you know, like they, <clears throat> I mean, like I mean, talking to you, it's like, I only know what I only know what's what's within my inner circle, right? And when you bring up this topic of redlining, and have you heard about this? And have you heard about that? It's it's kind of like a an eye opener, right? Um, so let's like let's actually dive deeper into that and like how redlining came to be today, and 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 why it's even a it's even a thing today in 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 our society. Okay, so. The general concept of redlining is basically sectioning off certain neighborhoods with a literal red line. They would draw red lines around certain neighborhoods, and they would say, this neighborhood right here is dangerous. It's hazardous, whatever the case may be. These other neighborhoods would be yellow or green. These are these are nicer neighborhoods, blah, blah, blah. Well, these neighborhoods that they drew the red lines around were predominantly African-American communities. Hence the term redlining. So what that did is, and, and we'll get into it right now, is uh, so how this came to be is after the Civil War, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves are now um, quote unquote free. You had military troops from the North in the South. Um, South did not like that, but it was a necessary evil at this time. This was a period they call uh, Reconstruction. It's very, very important time in, um, in American history and black history that really doesn't get covered in, in um and history classes, which is, is sad. It really is because it's it's it really does explain a lot that happens now. But during that period, you really had a lot of um, progress made in the Deep South. Um, blacks were um, getting voted into office um, because you had a lot of African Americans down there. You had you had plantation owners, but they did not make up an overwhelming majority because their workers. You know, you have a plantation owner. They they need workers. You only have one CEO. You have a lot of people at the bottom of, of that of that that ladder right there. Um, so when they became free, whites in the South became uh, they really became kind of nervous that their whole way of life would be uprooted. And so what they tried to do is uh, they tried to kind of hold on to their to their society as as they saw that it needed to be held on to. So what they would do is. They would enact black codes and Jim Crow laws. So it basically kept blacks in slave-like conditions without being called slaves. So there were things like uh, sharecropping, where you basically, maybe you would arrest a black person for being out past curfew or whatever the case may be. Uh, and instead of really throwing them in jail, what you would do is like, okay, you need to be, you need to work. You need to be in the presence of this person. And this person kind of picks up your contract. And so what would happen is like, so the black people need to work to kind of pay off that debt. So what would we do is we'd, they had to farm. 
Well, they didn't have any. They didn't have any tools. So where did they get these tools from? Where did they get these tools from? The white plantation owner, or former plantation owner. They would lend them out on credit. So the blacks would they would take this these uh these farming tools. They would till the land. They would work. Right? They were working for their own crops. I put that in quotes. Um, and at the end of harvest season, they would have to give up a percentage to the landowner. But that landowner could change that amount that they wanted. So maybe sometimes it'd be 20%, maybe sometimes it'd be 80%. It just kind of depends on, the, it was on their whim. And the, and the blacks in the South really had no, they had no legal standing. They couldn't sue. Like if there was a contract that they felt was um, not fair, they kind of just had to suck it up, unfortunately. Mm. On top of that, any, any black advances in the South were met with uh, hostility. You had, you know, domestic terrorism in the form of the KKK. And once, um, later on in the, the 1870s, when uh, the, the Union made a, I guess, the newly formed United States fully formed as far as uh, integrated back with the South, is that when they removed troops from the South uh, due to a bargain um, during the Rutherford B. Hayes uh, administration um, to let the Northern president reside over the South, they basically had to make a devil's bargain. And that bargain was, hey, you got to pull your troops out. Like, we'll, we will concede that you guys won the election. We'll give you um, Rutherford B. Hayes, but we're going to pull, you got to pull your troops out, we'll be okay. So they did that. And as soon as they pulled those troops out, boom, it went right back to the way it was. It went right back to the way it was. It was, you can no longer have slaves, but it was this, black people were, they were scared, man. They were scared. They, uh, they, and the result of that is the Great Migration. The Great Migration is a, basically a period from like the 1920s to about 1970s, roughly, um, where blacks, um, due to uh, economic stagnation, um, not being able to produce um, their own, you know, create their own wealth, and the domestic terrorism moved and migrated north, where they felt that they were better off, you know, economically. Um, and just socially for their for their well-being of them and their families. And they really did believe that at the time. Unfortunately, with America, the stuff that was happening in the South was more, you could see it. You could see it a lot easier because it was blatantly, it was out in the open. But, I mean, we can kind of see that today um, with uh, our immig immigration laws now is that when you have a mass exodus of people from one area to another, society is not really built to, to handle that influx of uh, demographic demographic change. Like it has to be has to be slow, because when you when you have these you know these areas where you had uh, what World War One and World War Two, where you had a lot of um, the industrial age, you had a lot of plants opening up, factories, Detroit, Chicago, Michigan. Um, these uh, these type of areas were like, all right, we can come here, we can work for you know thirty years on the assembly line, really create a, a life for our families, and that was, that's very appealing to a lot of people. So these blacks would move up to these areas and they would buy these houses or you know live in these apartments and stuff right near the plants in the inner cities, and this is where we get to it now. And you had a phenomenon called white flight, and it is called white flight because. As blacks moved to these inner cities, whites in mass moved to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. 
in these suburbs, and this is the part that's very important, is that these suburbs were newly created, um, especially in the time right after World War II. You had like the New Deal with uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, but a lot of that was, there were stipulations in there that in order to pass certain legislations, he had to make deals with uh, Southern Democrats to get this stuff passed through. And it was something that he really believed in. But some of these concessions really were to keep blacks out of uh, housing. Um, so you had newly formed government agencies like uh, the Veterans uh, Administration, the VA, that we all know, uh, the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA. These institutions that were created to really help help people um, one buy houses and stuff like that. Um, but they were not extended to blacks. And that's, you know, you had people coming back from, right from World War II, blacks who were segregated in the army coming back. They're like, okay, you know, I, t- I served my time. I'm ready to move on with my life. Uh, you know, these new loans, I, I want to buy a house for my family. I want to, you know, I want to really build this quote unquote American dream that was sold to so many people, but they couldn't do it. And that's, it was like one of the biggest injustices that, you know, it's really happened. I mean, you have, you had slavery, but the kind of the, the trickle down effects of slavery have really never been kind of fully compre- uh, comprehended and dealt with really. Um, but yeah, so what they would do is move into these, these uh, inner city areas, white to move out to the, to the suburbs, even blacks that had good jobs, doctors, um, lawyers, you know. They wouldn't give them any any type of credit line. No, no. Well, it, 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 <laughs> you're always taught this thing where it's you have full control of your destiny. You work your butt off, and the world is you know kind of your oyster. Like you can you can you can move out and you can do whatever you want. But for a lot of people, that was not the, that was not the case. Is okay. I'm making, you know, I'm sure at the time it's, you know, not as much as we make now, but, you know, $50,000, which at that time would have been a lot. Okay. $50,000 a year. I want to move to a suburb. I want to buy my family a nice house. You can't do that. Because what they did is by drawing these red lines around these neighborhoods, they use that as a justification to keep blacks from moving in. Because if this person, these black families that lived in this red neighborhood, move to your green neighborhood, that right there would be kind of a precursor that this neighborhood would now start to lose value. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. It's crazy. Your your artificial line that you drew around this neighborhood Mm -hmm. is now legal justification to keep families, black families from moving to white neighborhoods because now a black family just by the presence of that black family in a neighborhood would decrease the property values. That right there is crazy. It, it's, it, it blows your mind because like, I mean, I think most people, if you like really like told them that, you'd be like, All right, it's, it can't be that simple. You know, it can't be that simple. No, I mean, there were things put in place where, like, you can't overtly, sometimes you can't, but you can't overtly, like, express, like, 
that you're going to segregate certain areas. So, like I said, these you know, people that are good with words, they have to craft laws. They have to be very manipulative with, with the wordplay. And so what they were able to do is craft these this laws and legislation that that enabled that type of uh, behavior. Then on top of that, if even when it wasn't government regulated, housing communities would have covenants. These are just covenants between property owners. You know, uh, like you live in a homeowners association. You guys all have a meeting. People at the meeting say, hey, we need to keep our property values up. You know, like eventually we want to sell this property or we want to pass this on to our children or whatever. We're not going to allow blacks to move into this neighborhood because if they do, then our properties all go down. And they kind of, it's a, like a kind of a handshake agreement. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, and the thing is that it wasn't just in, you know, cities like Chicago and Detroit. I, this happened in California. You know, everybody thinks of California as this like real liberal place. It's like, no, this happened everywhere. Um, and and when, it, when did this start? Like, when did this like segregation of like, all right, if blacks move in here, then then we lose value. Like when, when did that get like started? It was really when it became popular across, across America. It was like after world war two, mm-hmm. world war two was like, because world war two after that, you really had the, the U S became like that, the global superpower, you know, um, our co- economy was booming. We had just came out of the, uh, it just came out of the, the great depression. Um, you had factories popping up all over the place. Um, people were, Coming back from the war, they were they were getting into into uh, the workforce, and you really had this period of economic boom in um, in America. You know, you had the baby boomer generation, all this type of stuff. Well, they really sold like that's when like consumerism really like became like a thing. It's like all right, these people come back, economic boom. There's more money going out there, and they really sell this American dream. The American dream is like, you know, you see these old timey uh, commercials with, you know, the family outside and this white picket fence with the house behind it. And and that's that's what it was for a lot of people. But it wasn't like that for everybody. And that right there is I think the biggest thing is to see that you see this picture on, on, on the screen of this white family. In the, white, in the white picket house and in the, in the, in the white picket fence in the house, and then you realize that that was only you know half of the story, and you don't really get the other part of the story. But that whole period of economic boom, where really people, families were able to generate wealth for their for their for the future generations of their family, that was not permitted for black families, and so I think that starts to describe in, you know, kind of where we're at nowadays. It's like passing on wealth is is, 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 a, is, a, is a real thing, you know? Like, when you think about a lot of things that people like to do, flipping houses, all that type of thing, why, why do people do that? So they can create wealth. You, you purchase this this house. That is, that is your property. You know, we, we really preach in this country property, you know, over many other things. Is that your house, your home, that is yours. You protect it with, you know, with everything that you have. Um, but that property... You know, you buy it a year over, you gain 10% on it. And then the next year, you gain 10%, you know. And then eventually, you have, that house is paid off. Now, that house is worth, you know, $300,000, let's say. And 
you've already paid that mortgage off, you can sell that house later, um, downgrade to a smaller house, give that fam, uh, give that money to your to your kids. You know, pay for their college. There's there's a a sense of um, economic stability and kind of a safety net that people have when they have um, sources of equity that others do not. Um, a lot of times you hear, I mean, we just went through the, this uh, the recession or not recession. Uh, we went through the the shutdown, government shutdown. Um, what you heard a lot of times is that people were not af- able to afford missing a paycheck, let alone two paychecks. That was true back then, too. It, it, it's not just a new phenomenon. It's people live paycheck to paycheck. That's that's most 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 families understand what paycheck to paycheck means. So imagine if you lived in a house and some of these these uh, these houses, right? So you also had this phenomenon called um, blockbusting. What blockbusting was, it was if black families started to move into your neighborhood or the threat of a black family or black families started to move into your neighborhood. Um, what um, communities would do or homeowners associations and things like that would do is that, hey, your property value is about to go down. You sell it to us right now. Like blacks are moving into your neighborhood. Your property value is going to go down. We'll buy your house at this price, which is significantly cheaper than they wanted to sell it for. But we'll buy it at this price and then, you know, you'll be able to go buy a house in another area and you'll be you'll be fine. So they 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 even used the threat of blacks moving in, whether or not it was true or not, to force whites out out of money as well. And like I think that's a thing that gets lost is that you're you're hurting you're hurting black families as well, but then you're also hurting the white families too because you're selling you're getting their house for pennies on the dollar, like they're still they're still making a little bit of profit. So I'm not saying it's like a net loss overall, but you're you're forcing these. People out, and then they take those houses, right? They bought at a discounted rate. They sell those houses back to the black families. But what they sell them is they don't give them the same FHA loans that um, the white families were able to use. What they do is uh, they give them these um, these these contracts, these restrictive contracts, and these contracts would basically be these black families move in. They're sometimes they're paying seventy five percent more for the house. The same house, wow. but they're not building equity. They're paying a, they're paying a quote unquote rental fee basically, every month seventy five percent, sometimes seventy five percent more than what the house was originally valued at. If they miss one payment, one payment, they can be kicked out without building any equity. They kick those people out. They bring a new family in, and sell those people the same contract. So these people are, they're making money, man. They're making money. And these black families have no, like, legal standing. Like, they had um, they had an association in, in Chicago of these black um, home contracts, contractors who basically, or not contractors, people that were given contracts to, um, that basically got together and tried to, to fight this in court. I was like, hey, man, like, we spent years paying these contracts, paying these contracts, paying these contracts. We should own these houses by now. We should own these houses by now. And some of them, some of them won those, those lawsuits. So some of them did get, did get their houses, but they still paid all that money. So it's not even like 
they gave them like the money back that they that they lost. It's like, no, okay, we understand that you that you were screwed. I think like five percent of the people that that had these bad contracts like got their actually were able to own their houses. But then you gotta think about that. You're charging seventy five percent more for these houses uh, for these black families. These people are working the same jobs, so a lot of them are working you know two jobs you know with families at home just trying to pay and make sure that their family has some place to stay on top of that that extra money that people like to to you know put into the house to keep it up to maintain the values they they weren't able to do that because they're all their money is going towards you know food for the kids and for these these contracts that are you know super bloated so the the housing, like the actual exteriors of the houses, the interiors of the houses are not being maintained as well. So now the properties actually are losing value. Plus some of these areas you had, um, I believe in Richmond or Oakland, California, where like certain areas where blacks lived, the city didn't provide services, some of the services to those, to those areas. So trash wouldn't come to pick them up. Like it, I, I'm telling you it, there's a great book um, that I read. It's uh, called The Color of Law by uh, Richard Rothstein. He's from the Economic Policy Institute. He was a researcher there. And he, this book is, man, it is it's really just details step by step, city by city, the way that the government really kept blacks in certain areas of town and really kept them from, from moving out. It. I'm telling you, if you read if if you read this book, you see, it's not just it's not just kept in you know areas like Chicago, or you know Detroit. It goes all the way out to California. It goes out to Atlanta, Georgia, where you have highways being built around areas to keep to keep blacks in. It's like all right, we're gonna build a highway here. We're gonna build a highway here. We're gonna build a highway here. Black neighborhoods gonna be right in the middle. Um, projects that were built after blacks moved into the neighborhood, industrial plants, all that type of stuff. They used uh, zoning practices to. Um, they would. The suburbs didn't want those industrial plants near where they're at. So they they were able to be zoned in areas where minority communities were. So now you know you see, you see stuff in like Flint, Michigan, where, you know, you have lead. You know, lead infecting the water. You know, they they still have that. That's been that's been going on for years, and that was you know, a lot of these things that you know, uh, economic or uh, ecological um, studies and ecological uh, impact on uh, communities. A lot of that stuff happens in lower lower areas. Like you know, a plant here releases its waste into the water. You know, like. A lot of that stuff happens in, in poor communities because you're not going to build these plants out, out in the suburbs, man. It's just not it's not how it happens. Like you have to keep these 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 values of these homes up, you know. And now we're kind of seeing the ramifications of, of it now. And that equity, there was a stat that I, I read, man, and it was it was kind of eye opening is that black families with 100 percent or black families that make one hundred thousand dollars a year live in communities in the same communities that whites do that um, that make $30,000 a year. So think about that. You, your family, mom and dad, both pulling in $50,000 $50, a year, 
$100,000 a year family and living in the same communities that whites, white families making $30,000 a year. That's crazy. Because, and you have to ask yourself, why does that happen? Well, it's because there's no, there's no safety net for a lot of these people. So they, they don't have the equity to pull out and to put a, you know, a down payment for houses. So they often buy houses that are cheaper than what they, what they should be able to afford if everything was equal for a long period of time. And that's, I think that's the part that, that gets lost is that like, yeah, you have people making, making money, being able to afford houses, but a lot of times they're buying houses in, in poorer neighborhoods and those houses don't build equity as fast as houses in nicer neighborhoods do as well. So you're, you're wealthier than your white neighbors, but the house that you the house that you are affording right now is not building the same amount of equity as your white counterparts that are in your same tax bracket. Hmm. So when they are able to pass that wealth on to their kids, it, and it, it kind of snowballs out of that. It's like wealth transfers. Well, the more wealth that you have, the more that you're able to pass on to your kids and vice versa. And that, that, that bleeds into everything from schools. Schools now, right now, so you had Brown uh, v. Board of Education, which was like landmark ruling in 1954. Basically, um, that separate but equal schooling is no longer pro- prohibited. It's 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 illegal in America. It took about 10 years or so to actually really implement that because the Supreme Court came down. I was like, all right, this is wrong. But it was kind of left up to cities and states to kind of implement how you were going to actually integrate integrate schools. You actually, in the South, you actually have more integration in the South than you did in the North. Because this is one thing for the people in the North at the time to say that, you know, they were, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're with you. We're with you. You know, Martin Luther King, we're with you. All this stuff, type of stuff. It's a different thing to say those words. And then when you actually have to take your kid to that school it's like, no, no, no. I don't want my kids in the same schools. You had in Boston, in Boston, because these neighborhoods were so segregated, the schools were segregated by nature. Like it's, you are zoned for your school, but if your neighborhood is 95% black, you know, 4% Hispanic, you know, 1% white, so is your school. Like that's just how, that's how it works. So in like cities like Boston, you actually had schools that were like, all right, we need to we need to integrate. So what they would do is they would bust black kids from these impoverished neighborhoods, sometimes an hour outside of their area, to these white schools. And these buses were met with people throwing bottles at these buses. These are these are kids in these buses, man. There's parents outside rallying, rallying to not let these kids in. I mean, you had, I believe it was in Arkansas, I think it's the Arkansas Five, where you had literally had to have send the National Guard down to allow these black kids into these white schools because there was so much protest out there. Mm-hmm. And it's and you did really have a period of, of integration after really like the Nixon and Gerald Ford eras 
uh, presidencies, you kind of had, you really moved forward as far as school integration went. Like you really had a lot of things where, yeah, blacks and whites were really starting to melt a little bit. And then we kind of got complacent, really. It's like, oh, yeah, we're making progress. All right, cool. And then as soon as, like, the courts really don't mandate that stuff anymore, everybody backs off. It's just nature. It's like, oh, your dad's looking over your shoulder. You're going to do everything right. Mm. As soon as dad looks away, okay, I'm not going to do my homework anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go watch TV. Like, that's exactly, what, that's exactly what America did. It's like, oh, all right, strict scrutiny right now. Like, people are really looking at us. All right, we got to make sure that we keep up appearances. And then as soon as they stopped, we're doing a good job. I was like, you know, hey, there's, there's black kids in, 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 in our white schools. There's, there's white kids in our, in our black schools and whatever. It's, it's, everything's good. Nah, it's not. You really had a backslide, and now, now you really have schools almost worse off than they were in that like 1970s era, 1970 to 1980. You really had progress, and then you kind of backslid. And now schools are more, more segregated than they were in that era. And it's, I mean, if you go to New York, there's schools in New York where it's 95% Hispanic and blacks, you know, and. And going back to the, the housing thing is that when you're talking about educational attainment, you're talking about our schools, right? Well, our schools are largely paid for by property taxes. Like, that's where most of the school funding comes from. It's, it's locally driven. Property taxes pay for a lot of these things. Well, if you are living in a minority community that's impoverished and your properties don't aren't worth that much, then your school's not getting as much money as the school that's, you know, located in the suburbs. That's just, that's common sense right there. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to tell people that your kids do not deserve, or not that they don't deserve, that these other kids deserve as much as your kids. It's very hard for people to tell that, to say that. It's like, well, why should my kid's school suffer? Because it's like, well, if we don't understand how these things kind of kind of build on top of each other and kind of put into place the system that we have now, then we're never really going to we're never going to be able to chip away at the actual foundation of where this stuff came from. Like the re the recognition that there are systemic problems and where those systemic problems come from. Without that knowledge, like. I said we're we're all you know we're all self-involved. It's it's human nature. It's, we focus on us and our families and you know the things around us because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. You got to go to work. You know you got to take your kids to school. You got to you know hang out with your your grandma and grandpa on the weekends. Like you know you got your small community of friends that you hang out with. You know all these type of things. You know you're just trying to live life. You're trying to get by, and it's perfectly fine. I don't fault anybody for that. But there are, you know, the world is big. The country's big. There's stuff going out, you know, there's stuff going on around us all the time. And we kind of need to be aware of that. We really do. Because it really, you say it doesn't impact you now, but it does. You know, if, if you're going to an area of town and you feel that you need to lock the doors, that you're in that area, I mean, there's a reason why that area is like it. You know, and it's it's very easy for us to just blame certain communities and certain cultures and 
you know, the way that kids are brought up. And that's not to say that they don't have certain cultures don't have responsibilities, but there's also underlying facts that that contribute to that. That contribute to that. Like they're and the, and the more I think that people understand that, I think you can you can start to you have empathy. Like you start to get and, and build this this level of empathy for people that, you know, come from different backgrounds. And you're really just like, man, like I didn't know. And I didn't know. And like as an African American man, like I really I'm kind of upset with myself that it took me that long to kind of realize it. You know, and it's like I said, you know, as a kid, you're not really concerned with others for the most part. You know, there's some exceptional kids out there that are really out there doing community service, you know, in high school and, you know, are really just giving back. And like they need to be applauded. But most of our kids, like, I had football practice, went to football practice, went to school, got good grades, got out. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to college. Um, and that was my focus. It was just, you know, that having fun. And I never really thought about anything outside of me, my family, my friends. I really didn't, really didn't. And I always wanted to be a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. I was, I wanted to teach math, but, uh, politics was always kind of a passion of mine. I remember I used to, used to come home from football practice and my dad would, he worked graveyard, so he would sit on the couch and uh, I have no idea why, but he he watched Fox News. And my dad was not a he was not a Republican. He wasn't. Um, he would watch Fox News, and I would just sit on the couch. I'd be so tired, I'd just watch, and I would just kind of take it all in. And I would get so mad at the things that were being said on TV because they would talk about certain communities, you know, and 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 people that people that look like me or they would talk about hip hop artists sometimes and the things that they would say about you know they would like talk about common or something like that and I'm like you have no idea what you're talking about like you 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 see a rapper and you talk about a rapper and you kind of lump them all together and I think we do that largely we generalize a lot um so they so they group you know blacks and hispanics and and whites and all these groups into these 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 larger entities and they're not like we're all individuals like within the hispanic community like you have you know you have mexicans you have um cubans you have like all these like it's not just one group Mm. of latin americans and hispanic americans there's individual cultures like black community is not just one culture like you have you know you have african-americans you also have like actual africans from africa from you know, Cameroon and Nigeria that, that come over here and their cultures are completely different. But we we don't see that as a society. We 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 see we see race a lot of times, we see skin tone and we see we see it in an exterior culture or an exterior image and we kind of attribute certain things. Um I mean this is this is what we do. Mm-hmm. This is what we do. Like cause it it's it helps you kind of determine how you're going to interact with certain things. And it's, it's, it's a built up, it's a built up mindset. And that's not to say that everything is wrong. Like, like it's animal instinct for certain reasons that you, you see certain things and you're like, this is bad. I need to get away from that. And and a lot of times that's, that's, that's accurate. It, help, it helps you stay safe. But sometimes like in society, like 
these inner cities we always portray, like you see on TV all the time, you know, Law and Order, these type of shows, right? Where certain neighborhoods, certain type of people, right? If you're watching that every day as a kid, you're not even, you're not comprehending what it's, what it's doing to your mind, like to your mind state, like to, to how you view other people. You're just seeing it. Or you, you know, you listen to you listen to music or you listen or, you know, you watch these movies. You always see these neighborhoods where there's, you know, crack being sold or whatever like this. And, like, and you always see a certain type of people in these areas. When you get older, you kind of project that into your world. Like you 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 go into areas and you're like, man, that kind of looks like you know, what I saw on TV, the, you know, the other day. Well, you start to react like, oh man, so this is kind of a bad neighborhood. I should should kind of I should kind of be cautious. Which is not to say that it's necessarily always a bad thing. But do you ask yourself why this neighborhood is the way it is? And I, I don't think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh no, this is how it is. It's not it's like black people, their you know, their culture, they don't put family first or, you know, whatever the case may be, like all these all these stereotypes that as as a black man are very infuriating when you hear, because, I mean, family is family is family, and every single culture has families that are really tight knit, really close, you know, and some that aren't. There's people that are, have a, have estranged families, you know. Like that's that's not. That's, I'm not gonna tell people how to live their lives, but don't attribute certain things to a whole culture without really doing the doing the work and kind of digging into how certain things became uh, the way that they are. And I think that's the most important thing is just education on, on topics. Just ignorance. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It, I mean, it is, it really is ignorance, but it's, like I said, it's, I don't think it's the fault of the person per se, in the sense that, like I said, we're all, we're all self-involved. But if you're going to have an opinion, I believe, Based around fact. Based around fact. Have, I'm, man, my friends will tell you. Like, I love to just debate. But, you know, like I, I, I said, I grew up in a, in a nice neighborhood in, in, in Vegas. You know, I went to Centennial High School out there when it was first built. So now, like, that whole area is it's huge. But when I got there, it was like Alexander and Grand Canyon. It was the corner. There was nothing north, nothing west. And that school, like, I remember they used to, we used to call it the Eminem bus, where they literally would bus minorities to Centennial. Because at the time, that area was predominantly white. Like, now it's, now it's mixed. But at the time, it was predominantly white. We used to call it the Eminem bus. They would, kids from Mojave and Cheyenne would get bused to Centennial. And so, like, I grew up around... You know, I had obviously black friends, white friends, whatever. But so now my friends, you know, some of them, you know, really um, right wing Republicans or whatever. And I love them to death, man. Like but we have we have conversations and it's it's really eye opening. And I think that's the best thing is like if you surround yourself with people that think like you and talk like you and only have one certain opinion, you, you surround yourself in this echo chamber. It's very hard to kind of learn anything new. Just because you're like, oh, this is the way life. This is how things are. But when you when you're surrounded by people that don't think like you or um, have different opinions, and you kind of are able to voice those, like I said, 
my friends are, you know, like I'll do anything for them. I, 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 I died, I died for those guys, man. But we can have a political argument and I can sit here and have this conversation that I'm having with you, with them. And they might not agree with me, but they at least lend me their, their perspective. And for me, that helps me kind of understand the hurdles of actually making this, this thing more known. It's like, yeah, I can tell people in the black community or I could tell my family about this stuff and my family will just nod be like, yeah, I know. That's not going to do me any good. That's not going to do them any good. But if I can have a conversation with someone, you know, my buddy Robbie was in the Marines, um, love him to death, man, tattooed up, white guy. He, We had this conversation on Super Bowl weekend where uh, I was kind of trying to, to lay it out. And he really, and it really kind of underlined the the obstacles that you really have. Because as soon as I started talking about the the history of slavery and going out there, as soon as I said slavery, it was like, why are we talking about this? Like, why are we going all the way back there? It's like, no, man. In order for you to understand where I'm coming from, you need to know the whole history. I can't, and that's I think a lot of in society is our is our struggle is that we say equality. But do we really mean equality? Because we say equality in the sense of, all right, everybody's equal now. That's fine. But what about the generation before? What about the generation before that are still living? What about, you know, my grandparents, uh, my grandma's white, my grandpa's black. My grandparents married in, I believe, 1962. Loving v. Virginia. It was a few years later that said blacks and whites could not marry. Now, my grandparents got married in California. They could do that in California. But in Virginia, if they lived in Virginia, they could not get married. That's my grandparents. So we always we always like to think that like this stuff is so far, so far gone. It's not. This stuff is like still living with us. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther King, I believe. Would have been 90 this year or last year or something like that. Like, he, like he was assassinated in 68, man. My mom was born in 62. My mom would have been six. Like, that's, those wounds are not fully healed. Mm-hmm. And we've never really, we've never really dealt with it. You had the, the, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 that basically outlawed discrimination in housing. Um, so it was, a, it was a monumental step forward, but it didn't fix everything. Um, I think in the 2000s or like maybe 95 it was, um, in Dallas, you had funds that were appropriated by the government um, for low-income housing um, tax credits in, in like cities like Dallas. 92% of those, what a lot of people think of like Section 8 housing, whatever, a lot of those houses, which were or tax credits that were supposed to be used to really kind of integrate the rest of the city, really allow blacks to move and, you know, and minorities and low income people to move to other areas of town to integrate with those areas of town. 92% of that, the, the funds were built for, were used to build houses in minority communities. So the city of Dallas took that money. I was like, Oh yeah, government's going to give us money. Well, yeah, we'll take it. They didn't use it. What it was supposed to be used for. It was supposed to be, used to integrate the rest of the city they like nah we're, we're gonna take that money line our pockets and we're gonna build these you know section eight houses in lower income areas which are predominantly 
you know, um, minorities. Like, that's not what it was supposed to be be used for. Like, that, the, the whole point of Section 8 housing, and you have things like in Baltimore where they have these voucher programs, which are, like I said, it's, it's, it's a good step forward. It's these voucher programs where um, it's basically like a lottery. Like, your family signs up. They choose at random, and then that family will get a housing voucher. And that housing voucher can be used to um, rent or to uh, move into a house in a in a nicer area. Things like that are are necessary, and they're they're a good step forward. But they're not really they're kind of band aids. It's not really like you're not doing open heart surgery. You're not really fixing the problem. You're just kind of. <laughs> I mean, that's what it really what it is. It's a band aid. It's a we acknowledge that there is some wrongdoing. We're going to try to fix it a little bit, but only as much as needed to kind of let us move on with what we were doing before. That's really what it was. It's just like, all right, there's some inequities. We acknowledge that. Here's a solution, and you move forward. But that's not a solution. We always, we always tend to think right now is that Everything that it is right now is like, all right, this was this just appeared. Like it didn't just appear, you know. It, everything is, everything that happens in in a society, there's a, there's a cause for it. Mm-hmm. And until we understand what that cause is, is I don't think we can ever really. I don't really think we can ever move forward in a. In a productive manner for society as a whole, I think we can move forward, in the sense of. Like we've kind of acknowledged the fact that there are some some, some shortcomings, and we're just like, I, right, any change is good change, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with certain types of change, but it's we we can't accept the bare minimum. I don't think that that should be what we what we strive for in our society. I think we should, if we really believe that you know this is you know the land of the free and all this type of things, we 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 have to practice what we preach. Mm-hmm. And practicing what we preach, kind of, it, it, we have to look at the past. We really have to look at the past and acknowledge the fact that this stuff did not end here, and I, and I, and I said that was slavery. And that's like, and that's not to say that the people now that are you know descendants of people that um, profited from slavery are bad. That's not to say that. Like that's, I think a lot of times it's like, well, why should like. I, I wasn't a slave owner or, you know, you hear people like, I'm, I wasn't a slave owner. My, my, my grandparents were a slave owner. Like, That's fine. That, I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to be guilty of that, but you can also acknowledge the fact that even I, who, you know, am a descendant of, you know, people that were enslaved still feel the ramifications. Now I was very fortunate enough in my upbringing that I didn't feel them as much as some other people did. But I still acknowledge that fact. Like, like my dad, you know, my dad's family from the South. Like, my, my grandpa's family's from the South. Like, we, we hear stories all the time. Like I said, I'm coming up in a, my grandparents, you know, got married in California. And my grandpa was on the police force, you know, was in the Navy. Like, certain things that he was not able to do earlier. Because he was able to, eventually was able to buy a house. And he, he provided for our, our for my family a lot and 
so did my dad. My dad did well, you know, Marines went out, was at North Las Vegas Detention Center out here. So like my family fit into this, to the system and, and used it to the benefit. But that's not possible for everybody. And if it's not possible for everybody, then we have to ask ourselves why. Or if it's way more difficult, let's say that, if it's way more difficult for certain people than others. Yeah. Like you always have those, those inspirational tales of people that came from nothing and, and kind of, you know, built their, you know, built an empire or whatever and kind of lifted themselves out of that stuff. Those are, those are great. Those are necessary as well. Cause you need to have some aspirational tales that you can tell people for people that aren't that fortunate to have something to look up to. Cause if you don't have that, then you have no hope. And that's, that's even more dangerous. Mm-hmm. But those, those tales like that, you know, you're, LeBron James's and you know all these types of stories like that where like kids like look up and they're like man one day I, I could be me but we shouldn't have to look at LeBron James we shouldn't have to look at LeBron James I should be able to look at you know you know my dad sitting in the, in the next room over and be like that's what I want to be like and that's I was like I said I was very fortunate enough that I had someone like that I had my grandpa and I had my dad that were that were really up there and I can put them on a pedestal and not perfect men by any means, but they were, they were great role models. I learned a lot of good things from them, but a lot of, you know, then you can get into, you can get into, uh, prison. Like, I mean, it's, it's all of this connected. Mm-hmm. So you have these impoverished neighborhoods and then you have, you know, you have high crime, high crime rates in these, you know, these areas. Now they're over policing these areas. You know, because it's like, all right, well, the the crime is here, so we know we need to focus our you know our attentions here. So you, you send police out, like that's, you know, it's common. It's like, all right, crime, police, and police do deter crime. Like that's not to say that they don't, but these police are now in these neighborhoods where they're seeing they're seeing crime, and they're locking up they're locking up these men. You know, and it's not to say that all of them are innocent, but some of them were not doing anything necessary that bad. Like you had your, your crack cocaine um, epidemic in the eighties crack, I believe was fined or uh, the sentence was 10 times more for cocaine, 10 times more than that of cocaine. And you have to ask yourself, why does that happen? It's like, well, there's been, there's been studies done empirical data that shows that blacks and whites do drugs that, Roughly the same amount. So it's not to say that blacks are doing more drugs, but if you're going to penalize crack, which was generally a, a quote unquote black drug, and cocaine was, you know, quote unquote a white drug, if you're going to slam the black community for doing basically the same thing, you're taking these 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 families, you know, these people out of their communities, locking them up in jail. You know, maybe some of them had families. You know, like the 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 there's a direct line that you can draw to a lot of these things. And it like, I think that's the thing is like, once you understand where some of this comes from, you can kind of point to other things and you're like, Oh, okay. Now this makes a little bit more sense. Now, you know, now I know why, you know, blacks live in inner cities. Mostly. That's not to say that, you know, they always do, but yeah, it's, it's like, it's like a crazy vicious circle. I feel like it's like, 
it all started right right here right, in 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 back in the day within slavery right and it just like it just kept growing right and then like yeah there's there's laws passed but there's still like a bad like a bad shadow over everything right and then and then i mean until this day you still see it i mean like um like the like the the gangs in los angeles right I mean, that's straight up like within inner cities. Right. And then you and then I feel like and I feel like everything, everything gets everything gets very shadowed. Right. Because it's like, oh, it's because it's because they're in that in that in that area. But because they're in that area, they're living they're living a a different life than other people. And because like it and if and if one person couldn't like get out and provide for their family because of of whatever happened, I mean, that that could have been their grandpa that could that that could have. That could have got them out of, out of that neighborhood, but because they couldn't, they were just always redirected into this certain neighborhood, right? And I feel like it's just like it's just like this thing. It's it's always like, uh, I mean, it's it's sad, but it's like it's always like it, putting them down at all times, yeah. at all costs, you know. And I feel like if it if it's if it's been this long, I feel it's gonna take that much longer for it to be completely like cured. Yeah. You know, that's the biggest hurdle. Is just, like I said, this is why, like I told you, I like I don't like politics, but it is a necessary evil. Um, I like I said, I'm more concerned with the policy side of things. Like that's that's my ultimate goal in life. Like I want to, um, I want to get onto the Nevada State Board of Education because education is really like, I think it drives everything. Um, I think curriculums need to be overhauled in most of America. I think they need to be up to date. I think that. The correct, the correct history of America, and when I say correct history, I don't mean like right or wrong necessarily. I mean the full history. Like I think we kind of cut out certain parts of our history. Um, one, it's you only have so many classes that teach this, so you have to figure out what is important, what you think is important for kids to know, and move move them through that curriculum pretty quickly and they need to be able to attain that knowledge and be able to take a test and pass pass that test. Well, like a lot of things with 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 humans in general is like it's very hard to accept responsibility sometimes. Like cuz you feel that you're being blamed. And that's and I think that's the thing that we need to get away from is like we're not it's not about assigning blame, but it's about telling the actual story. If you if you cut out if you cut out parts of your story, important parts of your story, people are not getting the full truth. You're, 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 it's a it's a lie of omission. You're 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 telling these people a lie. You're like you you're giving these people the, you know the perfect caricature of the country that you think that they live in, which is not to say that's not a great country. I love this country. I love this country to death. But I also understand that there's some things in this country that have not been great and that we've not dealt with properly. And that kind of bleeds over. And then, I mean, nowadays, I think you're just able to see it more. So it's like social media, man. It just, it amplifies everything. All this stuff was there before. It's just, we just see it more now. We're, we're aware of these things more. And we see like these racial divisions, you know, that are being created by, I want to say created by the media, but they're being amplified by the media. And we're like, man, like things didn't used to be this bad. Like, no, 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 things were worse. Like, we're living in a relatively like g- 
good era right now. Like, you got to think about it. Like, in the 60s, you had the assassination of JFK, the assassination of Robert Kennedy as well. You had Martin Luther King assassinated. You had Malcolm X assassinated. You had, um, like, I think, I believe it was Gerald Ford almost got shot. The gun went off. Like, it was a foot away from him, and the gun just didn't go off. Like, gun malfunction. Like, like you had these presidents and, like, figures of, like, black communities that were murdered. We don't have that nowadays. Like, like we're, we're better off, you know. Um, there's a lot more tolerance. But at the same time, like, just because things are better doesn't mean that we should stop. Like, I, I think that's the biggest thing is that it's like, well, you're better off than your grandparents and your parents. Okay, in certain aspects, yes, absolutely. But all the stuff, like I said, it's, it's comes full circle. All that wealth that is generated. These black families that send their kids to college, um, they don't have that 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 safety net that some of these some of these white families do have. Whereas, like, I you're able to pay for your kids' college, so a lot of these families have to take out loans because um, they don't have the wealth that was kept from them from uh, previous generations. So now that that debt becomes a burden, and now these kids have debt. And they've had to take out more loans and now they're getting these jobs and these jobs don't pay as much as what the amount of money that you pay for them. Let's say that it's like you get this college education, which is great. Like we have more people in college now than we've ever had, you know, like that's, that's a good thing. But we also have, I think $1.2 trillion in student loan debt. Like what, what messages are, are we sending? And, a lot of these these um, communities that were not able to create wealth for themselves and to to keep that equity are now saddled with a lot of that debt, and a lot of these these people have to drop out of college. So now you don't even have the college degree anymore. So now you don't, you don't even get that job that was what you went to school for, but you still have the debt. The debt didn't go anywhere. Now now there's a snowballing. So now now you're working. You know you might have a modest job, thirty five, forty, forty five thousand dollars a year. That's fine. Like you're able to. You know, provide for your family, but you don't have that that college degree that you're able to build. You know, a good, solid, you know, middle class life on anymore. And then, you know, then you couple that now is minimum wage across the country is at seven twenty five. Now, a lot of states, I think, yeah, uh, you know, like California, I believe Oregon and whatever, like these other states have, have raised the minimum wage, which is, which is great, but. Someone who's working 40 hours a week, you know, you know, people always, you know, they're always like, you know, SNAP benefits, you know, like food stamps, all this stuff. So people always want people to work. They're like, ah, it's, these people need to work. These people need to work. These people need to work. Well, a lot of these people are working. Mm-hmm. Like, you have what, unemployment at the lowest rate, you know, um, in what, like 30, 30 years now? So people are working, but... If you're working 40 hours a week at, you know, McDonald's, are you able to provide, a, like, a life for your family? Are you able to afford a rent at a house or in an apartment? Are you able to put food on the table for your kids off of one job? No. Mostly, a lot of these people are working two jobs. Mm-hmm. So, people say they want people to work. These people are working. They really are working. They're working hard. Well, they need to have better jobs. Well, 
Well, first you said you wanted them just to have jobs in general. Now that they, well, people at McDonald's work at McDonald's. We need people that work everywhere. Like, we need people at McDonald's to work at McDonald's. I'm a, you know, I work in the food industry. Like, I'm a server. That's, a, that's an important enough job. Like, it pays my bills. People need to come in and sometimes get away from their, their everyday life and they want to, they want a burger and a shake, man. I'm, I'm there to provide it for them, you know? It's not ultimately what I want to do, but I'm not demeaning the job. Like, there's jobs for a reason because they're necessary at that time. And they provide for people. But those jobs should also, like, you should be able to take care of, I'm not saying live lavishly, but you should be able to provide for a family. I'm not saying, like, seven, eight kids. If you have, like, one one kid, if you have a two-parent household with two kids, they should be able to live fine. And a lot of people are not, they're not living there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you have things that, like I said, full circle. In those areas, in those, those impoverished areas, you have predatory loans. You know, you, your Dollar Tree. I mean, not Dollar Tree. Your uh, Dollar Loan Center. You know, your Money Tree. All these type of things. Those aren't in every neighborhood. Those are in certain neighborhoods for a reason. These people are living, like we talked about earlier, paycheck to paycheck. Well, what happens when you can't afford rent because your car broke down? A lot of people, they, they did surveys, and I believe it was Pew. Um, they did surveys where they asked normal Americans if you could, um, if you could withstand a $400 like emergency. Most people couldn't. That's across the country. Most people are like, nah. If your car breaks down right now, most people, they can't, they can't afford to take care of their car without going more into debt. So what are these, you know, these money trees, they pop up everywhere, but like they're in specific, specific communities. So these communities, right? All right. My car broke down. I need a new battery and some new tires, whatever. All right. But I need money now. So I'm going to go to money tree. Now you take out a loan. They, they, they tell you, oh yeah, if you pay by the next week, you know, it's only like, you know, I think it's like $8 per hundred that you took out or whatever. All right. Cool. That's fine. If you can pay it right then. But the reason you took out the loan is because that money was already accounted for. You didn't have that money right away. So what happens is that you have like a two-week, um, you have a two-week cycle. So once that next paycheck is quote-unquote up, you either have to pay the interest on that loan to take it back out, or you can pay it off plus the interest. All these people don't do that. So what do they do? They pay the interest only. So they still owe the principal on that. And then they tack on another, another fee onto that for the next for the next cycle, and the next cycle, and the next cycle, and the next cycle. Problem is, they don't really do the background check. They like they get your they get your information like like hey we need your bank account, because they're covering their butts. It's like all right, if you don't pay if you don't pay up, we're gonna come take the money out of your wages. Like we're gonna garnish your wages this and that. These other companies too, they're su- they're supposed to talk with any like they're supposed to communicate with other institutions that are in the same things like because you're not supposed to take out more loans in you're only supposed to take out with one organization you're not supposed to take out loans from different places like you shouldn't be able to go to dollar loan center and then go to money tree and take out loans Mm. people do that so now you're taking out two loans from two different places to pay the interest on one and then to pay the interest on the other it's just no i'm telling you man that this is what it's very pervasive like That is only in certain areas for a reason. Like it is it is more it is expensive to be poor, man. It really is expensive to be poor. You gotta think about that. 
you go buy you go buy a couch from RC Willie, right? You got good credit, right? You got good credit, they give you low interest loan. You got bad credit, they give you a high interest loan. You paying two, three times as much for that couch as the person who has more money than you. Think about that. Just think about it. Like, kind of weird, huh? The person that can't afford the couch has to pay more than the person that can't afford the couch. More liability. Like, no, I get it. Like, from a company mm-hmm. standpoint, like, I get what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, th- like, think about it as, a, like, a, a practical, like, if you are a normal person mm-hmm. and I had to explain the way credit works to you, mm-hmm. you would look at me like I was fucking making shit up. I'm like, <laughs> what? That doesn't even make sense. Poor people pay more than rich people. Like, people would, what? It's weird, huh? <laughs> Just thought about that. It's weird. <laughs> we don't think about this stuff, man. We don't. We don't think about this stuff, man. That's, I mean, fun. that's weird. And that's what you have with the... Um, I mean, like, why, why don't you just put it on a credit card after that, you know? Like, I mean, like, rather than going to Dollar Loan Tree, you just put it on a credit card. Some of these people can't get... Credit cards, huh? Some of these people can't get credit cards. They oh, get denied man. credit cards, man. That's insane. And then you got to think about it, too. Like, um, <laughs> my brother, my brother, there is a distrust with... In in in, in um, black communities in general, I don't want to say like you know everybody in the black community, but in general with with, with banking institutions and stuff like that. You, you there's there are people that keep their money in the house under the mattress and stuff like that. Yeah, my, I, I know people like that for sure. Dude, my brother, my brother, he's going to be thirty this year. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm talking to him to this day, like, hey man, you need to put your money in a bank bank account. Like you need, he's like. Nah, man, it's a bank account. What if what if my money gets lost? I'm like, dude, your money's safer in the bank. Mm-hmm. Like, don't no wrong. Your money's making interest off of you because what they do is they take your money and they lend it to other people and they charge them interest and they make money off of your own money. But if you, think about this, you have a bank account. Let's say you're one of these people that I was talking about earlier where, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck, right? You swipe your card and you get an overdraft fee. Let's say you were like a dollar over. A dollar over your overdraft. You still get hit with a thirty-five dollar fee. Mm-hmm. That month, the bank is making money off of you by having your money in the bank, but you still get hit with a thirty-five dollar fee. Like now, you're federally insured, so if anything happens to that bank, if they lose all their money, you still get your money back. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's there's good that's done by the banks. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm I I bank with Bank of America. Bank of America. So, like, I'm not saying, I'm not knocking them. But I'm yeah. just saying, like, we don't think about all the little things that really, like I said, it's, it's expensive to be poor, man. It's mm-hmm. expensive to be poor. And as we were talking about earlier, it's like a lot of these poor neighborhoods, like, it's 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 demographic, man. It's demographic. So, like, where where do you see or what do you, so let, let's be proactive here. Let, let's let's <clears throat> think about, like, you know, steps forward. What can we do as a society to move forward from the situation that we're at now? And, and yeah, like, and like, and like what, where, where are we at now? So we can, so we can move forward. Yeah. Um, so this is the thing too, is that as, as a person that's focused on policy, it's always, it's very difficult to figure out the most effective way forward. Because really what you're doing, and this is where the actual politics comes into it, is you you have to create a narrative. Like, everything that you have to push forward has to appeal to a certain type of people. 
And those type of people, those are the voters. The voters have to, they have to be on board. Because we vote on representatives. Representatives, like that's what they're called, the representatives. They represent the people back home. If the people back home don't care about what you're selling, then it's not getting passed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great it is. It can end world poverty or poverty in the United States of America today. But if you cannot sell that, it's it's no good. Mm-hmm. So like that's I said that's where the politics comes into it. So for me, I think a lot of it is we have to. I think we have a, we, we struggle in this country. One, I think media definitely um, it hampers what we're what I think is is necessary because I believe that. And this gets into like capitalism, and I have some thoughts on that too. Like I think that there's some definitely some great qualities to it, but. Of capitalism. Yeah, but the the incentive structure for like these media companies is for the dollar. Like that's no that's not their fault. Like that like they're a company. They are they need to make money. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we let money dictate what we do instead of actually being socially responsible. That I think is the biggest hurdle that we have to do. Is that like with media, it's like if media actually focus on policy, things that actually impact people's lives, not, you know, Trump said this one day, Democrats said this one day, you know, what like that's that's not even it does impact people's lives in certain aspects like that. But that's the policy behind it, though. Like Trump can talk about whatever he wants to. Nancy Pelosi can talk about whatever she wants to. But at the end of the day. What's getting enacted into law? And we can't, we let we let the front line or the headlines kind of take over the important stuff. Like um, you have a lot of these Democrats that are coming in um, that are running for president in 2020. You know, there's a there's a million of them and there's like like 30 people. I feel like it. every day there's somebody new coming out saying that they're going to be president or they're going to run for president. But they have these policies. Um, uh, Kamala Harris and um, Cory Booker, all these people, like they're they're putting out policies. Maybe they they don't get enacted, but they're at least putting out stuff that's that's important that we need to talk about. So, I think that that's the most important thing is we have to drive the narrative. So we need to have policies that are big and that do address the problem. But one, I think the most practical thing is to do is, and it really. In a, in a way, it would work to do what I've been talking about the whole time is that it is a it is a thing of, with, with poverty. Like we have one of the worst child poverty rates in, you know, industrialized nations like in America. We don't talk about that a lot. You know, we like there's like kids are going hungry, man. Like that's it's a, it's a real thing out here. It's a real thing out here. We need to do more to address that. But we we get so swept up on these, you know, the border wall and this and that. Like we, there's real things going on in America right now that are more important to people's lives, and we need to cut through that. But I think I think one, I think the media needs to be responsible in how they cover things, and I think they need to be more responsible in. All right, if you're gonna talk about the the scandals and all that stuff, fine, but devote an hour or something to policy. Schools, schools, we need to, we really need to find a way to make a curriculum 
that educates kids in a productive manner about things that impact them on a daily basis. Like the math and the, the English and all that's that's absolutely necessary as well. But like when we go into history classes, like yes, we need the overview of the world history in general, we need the overview of United States history, but maybe there's another class that we can have that kind of gets into economics a little bit more um, and kind of explains to, to these kids. Like, I remember, like, when I was in high school, um, I graduated in 05. I didn't have economics class, man. Like, th- nobody explained to me, you know, credit or, you know, these things that most adults deal with on a, on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. these, what about these kids that are 18 years old, they graduate high school, and then they don't go to college. They go right into the workforce. Like, are we teaching them the proper things? Are, like, are we are we sending them the, the, the right message? I, I, I think right now is like, I think as a society as a whole, we fail to really, to, to do that effectively. And I think education, I believe, is the, the, the foundation of it. And I think once we start to educate people, then you can start layering stuff on top of that. Because then once people are more educated on the, on the, on the policies and stuff like that, then you can actually like start to explain things. Like, cause if I if I didn't read these books, if I explain all this stuff to you, like, it's fine, and you you might understand what I'm what I'm telling you, um, in, to your face. But a lot of these people, as soon as I stop talking, they're they're not gonna focus on this stuff ever again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because it, like I said, for a lot of people, it doesn't impact them directly. Mm-hmm. We need to f- find a way to like connect it to every everybody's lives. Cause if you're talking about helping out poor people in general, yes, it's going to disproportionately affect um, people of color, but it's also going to affect poor poor whites as well. So like that's the thing is like one, some people are going to try to spin that and be like, well, you're trying to just you're focusing on these communities. Now I'm I'm just trying to you know I'm trying to focus on poverty in general. Like yes, it's going to help certain people. But like it's gonna help us as a society as a whole. If you can if you can articulate that well enough and if you can actually have people subscribe to the fact that what you're doing is not is for the greater good, it's it's a, it's a tall order for sure. But I think that's where you have to that's where you have to start. With that in mind. Like you have to start with that in mind. Start at the foundational level and kind of build upon that. Cause you can't you can't topple a system from the top. You're not gonna push a building over from the, from the top of the building. No. That foundation is in place. It's for a reason. You, you chip away at that foundation, little by little, then the, then the rest comes down. And that's I think that's what we need to do is we kind of... It's not a revolution. Like, I don't think revolution ever is, like, is productive. I, I think certain things productive can happen from revolution. But revolution is, you know, once people get into power, it's... Power corrupts, man. You know, what is that? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Like, is that, you know, the phrase? Is You need to focus on your own thoughts and your own way of life. And that revolution happens within you. And then once you change your way of thinking, then maybe you can you can help somebody else out. And then you can help somebody else out. And you, can, you can help somebody else out. And that kind of spreads. But if we don't, if we're not attacking, like, the, the core, then we're not, we're not, doing anything productive like we're just we're layering shit on top of a a, a shaky foundation man and it's 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 tough man it's tough 
I think the right people also have to be the ones providing the message as well. It's hard, like, as an African-American, I can tell people this stuff, and some of them can just look at me as a black man like, oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you're a black man. You're trying to look out. No. But if someone that looks like them is saying that same message with as much passion, then maybe they change the perspective a little bit. Mm -hmm. Some people will listen regardless of who you are. Some people won't. Some people will discount, you know, if, you know, if a bum comes up to you on the sidewalk and tells you a sob story, do you believe that, you know, do you believe that person? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. But if that person is able to relay their story to somebody else, and that's that person who you more identify with can talk to you about that and really get you to feel empathy. I mean, just like actually understand where that person's coming from. Then, then you have a chance. But like I said, there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces that have to kind of be on the same page. So it's, it's difficult. Man. Some interesting topics today. Um, we're at an hour and 25 minutes. you believe that? No. <laughs> um, it, I mean, I, I feel like we can we can get pretty deep into this stuff, um, and then and it and it's kind of it's kind of like a fucked up situation mm-hmm. because it's just of, of what of of all this like snowballing that has been coming forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, into we into this day and age, but but now but now it's we're we're it's we're 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 not here right like to change things, but to more but to better be more aware of things mm-hmm. and. And to uh, and to show you guys, you know, and to a different perspective on on life out there rather than your own, right? Because at the end of the day, that's all we can do. Um, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you being here, man. You wanna you wanna say anything else to the people? Um, man. So I think there's two books that are really important. So if anybody's um, interested in the subject and just kind of wants to to dive deeper into it, um, the Color of Law by uh, Richard Rothstein. That was the book I was talking about earlier. Um, that one is just, it really just lays the foundation of how we are, why cities look like the way that they do. And I, I think that's the, I think that's the biggest impact on like kind of my, my thinking. Um, there's also a book called, uh, the color of money as well. And that one is, um, let me make sure I find the, the author for this one, but um, it's, it deals with black banks. Um, and it really, I just started reading it, so I don't want to, you know, mischaracterize it or whatever, but, uh, just from the little bit that I've read so far, um, it really kind of dives into how, um, black banks were kind of used as a way for blacks to kind of create their own equity and how they really never had the full backing of the government. And so a lot of times people will be like, well, you know, immigrants came and, they were able to create their own banks and this and that. And I was like, yeah, they were able to, but they also had government backing. And a lot of times they, what was extended to certain communities was not extended to all. And I think the, the color of money really kind of like lays that foundation of like, and we were talking about um, credit earlier and housing and all type of stuff. Well, it's all interconnected. Like that book right there um, kind of outlines the, the intricacies of, um, credit, black banks, 
um, government funding for housing and stuff like that. And it really just like, it's a deep dive into that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm really excited to read more about it, but like those two books right now are kind of just like foundational for, I think anybody that really, really wants to, you know, kind of do a deep dive, like, like, yeah, they're heavy books, but like, if you, if you want to understand, if you really care about understanding and, I think that those are good places to start. So awesome. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate Absolutely, it again. Man. Thanks, uh, check this out, guys. That's Smashcast, uh, available on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode. And I appreciate it for your time. Peace.